Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. Media Project is a half hour of commentary from some veteran regional journalists looking at things around the country and the news media of recent days, and we hope that you will enjoy the conversation and perhaps even engage in it with us. I'm Rex Smith, here with Barbara Lombardo and Ira Fussfeld and Dr. Alan Shartok, he of Northeast Public Radio. Ira, we need to make note of a great anniversary that is the newspaper you served for 43 years, starting as a little sports writer and rising to be published. I was never little. You were never. <laughs> the Daily Freeman has marked 150 years covering the Mid-Hudson Valley. That is some staying power. Huh? It is. It is. I have a feeling there are a number of newspapers in New York State that are in similar circumstances. I was going to ask Barbara when the Saratogian was launched, but the king of the newspapers in longevity is Poughkeepsie Journal, which dates back to 1750s, I believe. It's the second oldest newspaper in the country, but didn't become a daily until 1860. And so we, our birthday was 1871, and it's quite something. It survived a lot of stuff, and the, the biggest challenge may be right now as we speak. But it's a part of the community, a part of the region, and as I always say to my wife when we have an argument, you'll miss me when I'm gone. So I hope that never happens with the newspaper. We do. We hope it never happens. Ownership being a problem, one of the topics here that our producer, Dave Gustina, suggests is uh, taking a look at the rise of, let's say, competition in the major cities that are now where newspapers are run by that group, Alden Capital. That's who owns both of your papers, right, Barbara? Alden Capital now owns the Saratogan and the record that used to be your papers. And the United Dispatch in New York. So there's four of us in New York. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, Alden has become the poster boy for cost-cutting, and it's drastic. It's not uncommon. You uh, may have seen the list of some 90-odd newspapers around the country that have fallen away, and not all of them. In fact, most of them are not owned by Alden Capital, but the impact is palpable. You can see it every day, and a lot of hardworking journalists are working their butts off to do the best they can under very trying circumstances. Well, but the question I have for you, Ira and Barbara, is does it bring a political price with it? I mean, sometimes when newspapers are sold or when broadcasters are sold, they have to switch their politics or their political slant. Does that happen here? I don't know about Barbara's experience. I didn't experience that when I was running the the Daily Freeman. The politics of it was that we have new owners and and they control the purse strings, and that was the biggest impact that I experienced. Did, did you have a political impact? I think the political impact was well before even Alden Capital took over. I remember when the second Bush was running for office and the editors had the option to endorse Bush or no one, for instance. So that already existed, and I remember that the prior owner had said to me, uh, hey, Lombardo, your paper's got to lose that liberal slant. And I was like, what liberal slant? And I thought we were pretty <laughs> even-handed, where, where? and it sort of depend on who they were talking to. That guy's no longer with us. Yeah, I think but I all the capital, it's less politics and more just cut, cut, cutting. You know, gutting the staff, selling the real estate, jacking up the subscription prices so that the paper has less value to the readers. 
So I well, so you don't have to worry. If you actually have fewer print subscribers, that reduces your costs. You don't have to buy as much paper. You don't have to worry about delivery. So as the world transitions to digital, there is a strategy by newspaper owners to actually reduce your print impact. But, you know, I, I don't see in print what we see, for example, with Murdoch at Fox News, although he also owns the New York Post. The people who are running newspapers now, the big companies, they don't do it, by and large, in my experience, to be the next citizen Hearst. No. I, was, I was telling you about the PBS had a two-part series on Hearst. When he was in his heyday coming up, he wanted power. He was a power broker. The people who are at Alden are very happy to be in the background. Their, their interest is making money. Their interest is telling newspapers to cover their communities as best they can with whatever resources they have. But they don't bother us, to my knowledge, about who should be endorsed for president or any other position. Well, Ira and Barbara, does it work? In other words, the product is diminishing. And the question I have for you is they're buying these papers up and they're saying, okay, we'll put them all together and we'll make economies. But does that work? Are they making money? Well, I haven't seen the P&L profit and loss statement at my old newspaper for eight years, but I dare say if it was profitable when I was there, it's still profitable, but probably not nearly as much. Right, because they're going to wring out every penny that they yeah. can from the properties. And what suffers is the public's ability to know what's going on in their communities. We've got a lot of city and county elections going on right now where the readers are not really getting anything beyond press releases to know what they ought to be thinking and how they ought to be voting. Well, the analogy for me is washing my underwear. Glad to hear that that's Oh, happening. boy. I can't wait so, to see where this is going. <laughs> you say they can't ring out anymore, uh -huh. you know. <laughs> After a while, there's nothing to ring out. Well, that's well, then true. They, then they could close you. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, there is evidence around the country of communities where newspapers have gone out of business or are far less than what they used to be, where things are happening such as town board meetings, school board meetings are not being covered, and so they're able to work in darkness, and that's to the detriment of the community. Taxes go up. Crime is even perhaps going up because people are not worried about seeing their names in the newspaper for having been arrested. So there are real-life impacts of this, and that's why when I joke when I say you'll miss me when we're gone, but they will miss us if, in fact, we do disappear. I doubt they'll miss you, but that's a different story. Well, they may not miss me. Well, I can, no, I can I already tell you. you. I don't mean you. I mean those products, those newspapers. I have a feeling that, you know, you overestimate how much people depended on seeing their name in the paper. I don't think they did. And, Boy, uh, they had a lot of newspapers with names and stories posted on refrigerators and shared with cousins and grandmas and grandpas. I, I think that they would miss it. You don't have the Little League scores and you absolutely. don't have the bowling scores. I just found in an attic the other day a collection of clippings that my mom had taken of when I was on the high school tennis team in agate type, which is the little tiny type on the sports page, folks, showing an agate type what the scores were of the matches I lost. <laughs> and you've <laughs> Most, got a lifetime lost, later. Yes. You've Got yeah, and here I am. Yeah, so virtually yeah. a lot of time later. So, and I think that that is what knits communities together is what is going away, especially when community newspapers go away. The big communities will be served one way or another. You know, the talk is, well, Alden Capital owned the Baltimore Sun. Once a great American newspaper is now uh, in such terrible shape, and supposedly Baltimore is getting a digital competitor to be called the Baltimore Banner, apparently, will launch next year. Digital-only nonprofit newsroom, interestingly. But, you know, you can't clip a digital 
Well, you can clip it. Oh, as yeah. Said. Come on. Get past that. <laughs> oh, man. Come on. And happy belated birthday. But Boy, thank really, you. This shows how old we're getting when we're thinking in terms of the value of something the you clipping. can clip. Mm-hmm. They are clipping things digitally. Mm-hmm. And if we can't get past that, we're yeah. not going to be But part of the problem, forward. the big part of the problem is, yes, you can clip the story digitally, but the story is not being covered. You're not going to clip Little League scores digitally. They're not going to do that. Yeah, but how, how those things are shared... I I liked your line, um, Rex, when you said about a closely knit community or keeps mm-hmm. the community together when you can still have Little League scores, bowling scores, all of those things that a local newspaper used to provide, but it's going to be for the niche audience. So it could be the league having its own Facebook page, putting all those things That's on. right. They don't need us to have that information. That could be. But that means the community at large also isn't seeing who's getting promoted, who got yeah. an award, who's made the dean's list. Well, here's one that I bring in the political scientist here, Dr. Shartok. On, That's on me. This. That would be you then, <laughs> Professor. Well, hold on, he's doing his laundry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if we can wring out some wisdom here. Here's an hypothesis put forward by CNN on reliable sources, which is Brian Stelter, the chief media correspondent for CNN, puts forward the notion that our democracy is more in peril than we realize, that the main critique of journalists these days needs to be the failure to cover the threat to democracy. And I wonder, Alan, if that has a relevance for local media, such as should we be talking to all these local candidates about how they feel about Donald Donald Trump Trump and that sort of thing? What do you think? Well, sure, I do believe that. You know, I think we're in a position now, difficult as it may be, that the long finger of Trump gets on to an awful lot of people. And so it's not that he calls up a local newspaper or local broadcaster and says, you should do this, and everybody quakes. It's more anticipatory. In other words, a lot of these outlets think ahead and say, well, I don't need any of that trouble. And he's gone around and he has threatened, basically, and it's worked. Yes, I think that man casts a pall over a lot of journalism, including local journalism. So if the Republican Party is in his thrall, if the Republican Party is entirely under the control of Donald Trump, who is a figure pushing us toward authoritarianism, a figure contrary to American democracy, how do we then cover these Republican candidates? Should Steve McLaughlin, the county executive in Rensselaer County, where I live, should there be a different approach to covering him because he runs on the ticket of a party that seems to be dedicated to anti-democracy? Is that fair? Or is that just getting into a completely biased mode of coverage? I think it's more than fair. And I think it absolutely has to be done. We've got a guy who's running for governor and seems to be approved of in New York State by all the Republicans. And he's a Trumper. There's no two ways about it. He is a Trumper. And therefore, you know, people need to know that. And then you wonder why they have chosen somebody in a blue state which hates Trump's guts. And of course it has a tremendous effect. And people should be brought to the bar of justice for that. Hmm. Well, I've been thinking a lot about this, which is saying something because I'm retired and I should be just not thinking about it. You're anything. retired? Yes, I'm retired. <laughs> the, the, you know, they talk about a slow-moving coup. I think you guys talked about it a little bit last week. And whatever is going on, as being described by Alan with Trump, is going on in the broad daylight. We know about it. And then the question is, what, if anything, can we in the media do about it? 
Now, there was a lawyer by the name of Mark Elias, who's apparently very well-known and well-connected in Washington, who was critical of the media, and he believes that this story is not being given the prominence day after day that it should be given. He believes this is as dangerous, if not more so, to our health and welfare than is COVID or is climate change. And his, his suggestion is this ought to be on the front pages and the lead stories every night of the week so that people understand the threat that is facing this country. Even, and even though they sort of, oh, yeah, Trump's an authoritarian. Well, is that what this country wants? Has it fully settled in people's minds what that means? At least 73 million of them wanted it. I'll tell you that much, number one. Number two, I watch uh, with great fascination uh, how the press and ownership and capitalism all come together. Uh, You know, you want to make sure that your candidate is going to support what you want. Look, there is a very big schism in America right now between the haves, the middle, and the have-nots. But the 73 million, they wanted Trump. They liked Trump, but did they understand fully what the impact of Trump is going to be? Well, now, don't be condescending. No, I'm trying not to be. Be, I haven't used the word deplorables yet. (laughs) We have to be very careful in drawing the line between letting people know where these candidates stand and then giving our opinion on what what it might mean and trying to bash people over the head and saying, like, what's wrong with you? Don't you see how dangerous this is? I think we'll turn people off. On the most local level, the free local weekly paper in Saratoga, for instance, to its credit, is holding live stream half-hour interviews with candidates, candidates' nights, where you could submit questions. And when I submitted a question, we'll see if it gets asked, but I wanted to ask the candidates where they stand on Trump and the big lie about the election. And the response was they'll consider the question, but I got the impression that it was they'd like to focus on local oh. questions. Mm-hmm. So it's not, are you going to be able to plow my street? Or are you going to develop a building on downtown? Or are you going to have more parking? Those are important questions that people do want to know. But I think more than ever in my lifetime, I want to know where these people stand on the issue of Trump. Well, you know, it's an interesting question because these local races end up having national impact. We have seen how the Democratic Party under Barack Obama didn't pay any attention to the state and local state of their party. To their detriment, that and the Republicans did build, Obama was rather disengaged from party building. And the result is being reaped today by his heirs. But similarly, in journalism, If you have a candidate for county court judge, say, a local race, even a candidate for surrogate court judge, and you don't talk to them about some of these national issues, you will lose your chance to have an impact because those people end up getting the federal judgeships. They are plucked off their little local benches and put into federal positions. And I think that's how you have gotten a lot of judges, for example, who are opposed to abortion rights because these people were rather stealthily put into position where that wasn't part of their ruling Who cares if a local judge has a position on abortion rights, but those people have a way of rising pretty quickly. And so similarly, if you're not asking a candidate for county executive or town board how they feel about the assault on democracy by Trump loyalists, by the Republican Party around the country, and it is an assault on democracy, then you're not really doing your job as a journalist, I think, at a local level. And are the people who we would want to reach with that message, are they even reading us or watching us? They're not exposed to that particular message because they're in their bubble. You know, I've been looking at the New York Times and the Washington Post at 2 a.m. every morning in preparation for programs like this. 
And I think, in answer to Rex's original very good question, I think they're quite pronounced in their anti-Trumpism and that the stories are chosen that way and that they do show up on the front page of the paper. I don't think one could describe them as being even-handed when it came to that, which I applaud, by the way. It's not as if I think it's a bad thing. Nevertheless, I think that we can't say that the two major newspapers in this country are ignoring, you know, you guys know that but I they're hope. preaching to the choir. Yeah. Yeah, but here's the thing, Ira, when yeah. you, you ask a legitimate question, are we going to be reaching the audience that really needs to hear this the most? And even if the answer is, yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, we still have to get that word out. We in the responsible media that cares about Do what we can, you we mean? Still, yeah. We can and we must. We must. It reminds me of, you know, the Democrats try to pass voting rights legislation and it fails because, you know, they couldn't get a single Republican. So their bill fails. But I think it's more important to bring for them to have brought that out, try to talk about it, even though they're prohibited, they can't bring it up for debate. They try, they let the public know that you're trying to inform them about something. If it gets voted down, then you just, it's not just that it failed, it's that the Republicans wouldn't go along with it. And similarly, in the media, we need to just whether people are listening, whether people are agreeing, we have to know that we're doing the right job of getting that word out over and over. Somebody's going to listen. It's our responsibility not to shy now, away. You say getting the word out. What word? I mean, if you're a Trumper and you're listening to you on the radio right now, you ain't going to like what you're hearing. Say, I got the word. Why is she talking about getting the word out? We still need to do it. You don't have Tucker Carlson, unfortunately, making the same point. You know, instead you have Tucker Carlson and his ilk making a big deal about Colin Powell, for example, you know, which is kind of outrageous. Tucker Carlson suggested after Colin Powell died that Americans were being lied to about the COVID-19 vaccine because Powell had had the vaccine and he died. Well, of course, he was 84 years old. Check. Uh, Yes, check. He had uh, multiple myeloma, uh, I believe, and he had another debilitating neurological condition. Uh, Was it Parkinson's? Yes, I believe. So the fact is, this does not in any way suggest that we are being lied to about the vaccines. But again, you've got the local media trying to do what it can. You've got people concerned on these issues as we are. But you have this very powerful, pernicious force in America. Yes, and Fox Fox is not saying... And by the way, we all have to be vaccinated. And by the way, we all have to be tested. They don't talk about that and the fact that they all have to be vaccinated by order of their employer to keep their workplace safe, but that's not what they're putting out on the air. You feel like there ought to be a law, but of course there can't be. We have the First Amendment and we need to respect that. But boy, it drives you crazy that you have this force Fox News that really is causing so much of the trouble, I think, that we're seeing in this Well, the early question to me, Rex, is in terms of protest. Does the media have the right or the ability to protest what they consider to be the end of democracy? Now, I notice you're sitting there with a white beard. I've never seen that on you before. <laughs> the part that's white. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm He's wondering. talking to Rex, just to clarify. <laughs> yeah. and, I'm, and I'm wondering whether that's a protest of some kind. A, a protest. No, no. Merely trying to please my wife, who said she liked the scruffy look. And so, I, you know. Interestingly, you, mine if, does, too, but I won't do it. Really? No. no. I've always found the best thing to do is to do what your wife likes. <laughs> well, generally, you are right. Generally, you're right. I'll second that. If you're 
you're just joining us, The Media Project, Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith, and we invite you to share your thoughts, media at wamc.org. Hey, I was off last week, so I missed what this writer is writing about. Yes, I was. Ray from Pownall says, the panel discussion should be an hour. Apparently, you guys talked about that last oh, week. Oh, come on, Rex. You know it's a big joke. At the end of every show, <laughs> I say, if I actually said as the inventor of the show and as the head guy at the radio station, if I said that, it wouldn't happen. I mean, you know, I, I've always believed it's a very good show. You know, I, I would remind Rex and Alan, I don't think Barbara, Barbara wasn't involved at that time, but the station ran an anniversary show at the Linda. I remember that. It was an hour show. Yeah. It was not just the usual four of us. We had some of our alumni who showed up. Yeah. I was think, yeah, among others. And I, I was thinking going into this program that it was going to breeze by and I found it about 50 minutes in we had already gone 20 minutes too long even with, <laughs> even with all those people there so it's a lot easier to do it in a half hour and make some well, semblance of sense. Ray from Poundall suggests a second half hour weekly panel discussion to include a crossover participant. I wonder what he means by that. Yeah I think he means a Trumper something like oh, that. Oh I see I see to coordinate or go more in depth on discussion topics. Okay anyway well thank you Ray. Maybe that's not what he meant I don't know. I, I, I'm I, just taking a wild guess. A wild guess. There we go. But anyway, we welcome and appreciate your comments, media at wamc.org. Reporting has changed a lot since some of us began. And one of those ways is that uh, you can't talk to public officials the way you used to. And that is because barriers have been established by agencies. And the one of the unseen effects for most Americans of the COVID crisis has been even more dominance by public information officers. It is censorship by PIO is the headline that was put on this by an article in Editor and Publisher, a trade publication. You know, I would be very pressed, I think. It would be, I think it's very difficult to be a reporter these days because you can't develop your sources. You can't actually walk into somebody's office the way, say, when Mario Cuomo was lieutenant governor, you could drop in on his office on the second floor of the Capitol and talk to him, or, or the way you could go up to the fourth floor of the Capitol and talk to the Ways and Means staff. And nowadays, everybody is controlled by PIOs. I don't know how you get around that. Well, the New York Times seems to do a pretty good job of it. They get the people who, you know, who they want to talk to. The Washington Post does. Well, we don't yeah. know how many times they haven't. They may well, have, that's right. Yeah. That's right, Ira, yeah. as always. Uh, <laughs> but then there's, then there's the other side. Do the local people have that kind of relationship with their officials? Well, and I, I would add on to this, to the PIOs, is how much in interviewing is now being done by email. So you oh. really don't have a chance to interact with the person. Now, the government official would argue, I would imagine, that this is a very, the, by having PIOs do this and running interference for uh, for them, that they're being efficient, they're saving the taxpayers money because they'll be able to concentrate on their jobs and not have to spend so much time talking to the press. But I think, I know those of us in this room understand how difficult it is to, to get to the bottom of a story if you're only dealing with a PR man as opposed to actually talking to the Mario Cuomo lieutenant governor of the world. Right. It definitely makes it more challenging to collect the news, and it's a greater challenge for reporters to learn how to develop sources because you still need to talk to the people who maybe are no longer permitted to officially talk to you or to be quoted by you, but you need to know those people so that you put stories in context so you can see if your information is correct. We've talked about that a thousand times. Yes, you have one or two or three or four sources, but then what do you owe the source? Well, I think you owe the source fairness, accuracy, diligence. 
That's so. Oh, it's that's so, so true. Yes, self, thank you. It's so that's true. So my my um, journalism class right now. There's 17 or 18 students, and they're all working on an enterprise story that would relate to students on campus, wide variety, and almost every single one. They've tried to contact people in the different departments or offices on campus that would be their expert sources for their topic. Sure. And in most of the cases, they have been channeled to the communication office of the school. And so there's a couple of people in this one office that have actually been fielding most of the questions for them. And you're right, Ira, most of the interviews have been done by email. So yeah, you lose so much. The communication people, I want to say, have been really great to us. Hmm. as a class, and they know some of the stories might appear in the Albany Student Press, yeah, and but most, it's not the same. Most of these public officials, not all, but most of these public officials are smart enough to understand that in today's media climate, these reporters who are trying to talk to them are stretched too thin, so you're not going to see them sitting for three hours in the waiting room hoping that the guy will come out of the office. They understand that they can get away with this because there's too many other things on, on our plates. And one other thing, they lie a lot. So in other words, they would tell you, if you say to them, how come you don't talk to reporters? They say, what? I talk to reporters all the time. Right. What are you talking about? But sometimes they're afraid of reporters. They don't want to be portrayed badly. They know that the press is going to be criticizing them, and they're going to look bad. They're going to be embarrassed. Although I tell you, going back to where we started with my newspaper's anniversary, I was interviewed via email for the story that surrounded this event. And I must tell you, I was concerned about how I was going to be portrayed of in the course. story. We as all well do. It. And as a politician, their lifeblood is getting good press because it helps them get reelected, So Aww. it's nerve-wracking. It's nerve-wracking. We ought to be nice to them. You're, that's a very oh, kind... I'm not I'm not you hear a condescending nature of his voice. This is the home office for condescension. <laughs> we shouldn't we'll have to put to politicians PIO. on the uh, spot and make them actually have to think on their feet and actually speak to us. I know, I know you didn't really mean that. No, but, but we can appreciate, or well, we should yeah. be able to appreciate what it's like to be on the other side. Absolutely. I spent four years as a, as a political plaque. You know, I understand being on the other side had the notebook and being misquoted. And in fact, one of the things that stunned me was once I became a press secretary to congressman as a young guy was how little the media seemed to understand of what we were doing and how little attention they paid to the real ins and outs of it to understand nuances of stories. I think it made me a better reporter, frankly, when I went back to journalism because I understood how government gets away with a lot because we don't do a really good job of staying on top of a story. Hey, Rex, you can't have it both ways. I can't? You, no, you certainly <laughs> cannot. You can't say, as you just did, you know, when I was a PIO, I understood how important basically self-defense was. And then when you got to be a reporter, it made me a better reporter. How? Oh, I'm saying I, I think that I tried to pay more attention to details. I thought that I was a more nuanced reporter, but I am saying I think that the media doesn't do as good a job as we wish on getting things right, frankly. The basic hack minimum is getting the facts straight, and I wish we did a better job of that. I wish we were more attentive to the details and help people understand how government actually does its job. We talked about the way that Congress is now manipulated against democracy. Some higher-end publishing does that, but an awful lot of local media, we end up doing sort of an easier story rather than getting to the nuance, the truth of things. Things. So, yeah, I guess I have it both ways. We don't do as well as we should, but we do better than if we weren't there at all. And by the way, when we do interviews via email, there's far less chance of the quotes being screwed up. I mean, they're right there. That's true. 
Yeah, and far less chance of a follow-up question than a clarification. (laughs) Exactly. That being the end of the time we have for this week's show. Already? Can you believe it? It should be 40 minutes. (laughs) This show should be 50 minutes. (laughs) No! All right, Dr. Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude greatly to our producer, David Gustina, and to you folks for joining us this week with your sublime patience on The Media Project. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.